Hey, welcome to The Look Back, my pandemic podcast, or hopefully post-pandemic podcast, broadcasting here from the basement of Newman Media Studios. My name is Keith Newman, and I'm the host of The Look Back. And this is a place where we have some fun conversations with old friends, a few newsmakers, and some rule breakers, all in the name of sharing insights and experiences, along with a little bit of levity and fun. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And if you're so inclined or perhaps even open to some bribery, you'll share this podcast with some friends who might also enjoy it. This episode is sponsored by Estrella, the blockchain powered cap table and shareholder management platform that allows executives to manage and leverage their company's equity as a recruitment and retention tool, as well as a resource to enhance company culture. Estrella meets all of your shareholder management needs, along with the highest level of customer service and at the best price. Ask to speak with an equity expert or get a demo today of Estrella at Estrella, A-S-T-R-E-L-L-A dot com. Let's go on to the show. Well, look who we have here, SC Mawadi, a partner from... uh, Mighty Capital and um, a fantastic uh, product and venture fund. Um, SC, you were a, a product leader in places like Facebook and Nokia and EA. And I know you've got a deep background at Stanford as well. And you've got this awesome blog, uh, Products Account. Um, and I was just excited to have you on the program um, just because we're at such an interesting intersection right now with everything happening around AI and how that's changing the landscape, both from an investor standpoint, but all the companies looking at how do we take advantage of this amazing new technology that's been actually around for quite a while. (laughs) But uh, the world's exploding and the need for product and great product and the the, uh, effort put into product probably has never been greater. So SC, welcome to The Look Back and thanks so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to chatting. Okay, great. Well, did I? How did I do on the background and the intro? Did I get it? Did I get the key points? You you hit all the key points. Yes. <laughs> um, because I've engaged with you a few times in your venture fund. I know you're so focused on product and really helping um, early stage product tech that you see a vision for, and then sharing resources and expertise and helping build that. What are some of the common things you look for? in product and and how you look to um, help grow companies at that early stage and and building out their product? Yes, yes, that's a great question. So Mighty Capital invests at series A stage. So company is no longer sort of tinkering in the garage. Uh, They already have customers. They have, you know, some kind of key team members. Um, they have about a million in like revenue or ARR, depending on the, the growth rate. And where we help them is really accelerate the go-to-market. And the reason for that is that uh, during COVID, there was a major shift in the way um, technology products and software is sold to um, enterprise and, and you know, Fortune 1000. It used to be that you would sort of you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you start selling to the chief business officer, whether it's the CMO, chief marketing officer, or the CRO, CHRO, 
And then once you convince them that you deliver ROI, then they would say, oh, okay, now you got to get my IT organization on board. And so you'd have a whole separate sales motion for IT. But during COVID, the chief business officer really lost a lot of influence in the C-suite because they couldn't interact with customers directly. And instead, the chief product officer became the, the main point of contact for voice of the customers. So what we're seeing now is that companies that are building right now and raising series A's, many of them are actually trying to sell into product. Product has become a key buyer of technology. And so our, our uh, platform engages over 300,000 product managers. And so we're a very, very effective, good to market channel for uh, emerging startups. So we help them with that go-to-market acceleration. So go go a level deeper in that. That's so interesting. Just to have, <laughs> I think people could gloss over what you just said. 300,000 uh-huh. is amazing. Yeah. So 300,000 product managers, that's about 20% of all the product managers out there. And they're across industry, across geography, working on all sorts of different products with different levels of maturity. But most of them work for for larger companies. And these larger companies, they, you know, they are really driven by like tools and and uh, process and efficiency. And so many of these product managers are responsible for driving the the tool stack. Um, in their organization, which is what you know makes them incredible buyers for a lot of startups today. Right. Who would who would decline deny a product manager from giving them a tool they need to do their job? Right. Um, yeah. And you know what's st- interesting as well is these product managers, like there's a whole new playbook to sell into enterprise because of that. Like when you sold to like the chief business officer, you'd had to go like, oh, here's my, you know, ROI. And then nobody used the product because it was kind of not really friendly. But product managers, when we, you know, when we uh, interview them and consult with them, and I, you know, I can tell you how we do that. Um, they say, you know, I buy stuff that like I buy great products, right? So it's sort of in a way, uh, you know, this idea that the best product wins. It's it's uh, becoming more and more a reality post pandemic because product managers are buyers and they buy great products. SC, that's right where I wanted to go. <laughs> so yeah. things have changed dramatically, haven't we? Seen a shift? Not just I mean I talked about the technology and things like AI, but product manager today versus ten years ago. Wow. Yes. Well, ten years ago, it was one of those like only in the tech industry almost only in Silicon Valley. And now we have product managers across industry, uh, product managers across geography. In fact, earlier this spring, we celebrated the sixth annual global product awards and we got 4,000 companies nominated as companies that basically are building tools that are used by product managers from like, you know, 3,000 last year, 2,000 the year before, and then 1,000 or less before that. There's an explosion of the number of tools and companies building for product managers. And then we also started introducing regional product awards. So we're celebrating awards in Quebec, in Canada, and a couple of other regions in the world saying like, 
product is no longer just a Silicon Valley thing. It's everywhere. So, yeah, I think most people kind of equate product manager with a startup tech company, right? But what you're saying is every company, not every, but a, a lot of the Fortune 5000 have gone to hiring product managers and not one or two, but now one or 200 perhaps as they expand their offerings into more digital, more tech, more cloud, things like that. Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about these large companies is they are so desperate to innovate, right? It's like the digital transformations that have been accelerated, you know, by seven years with, with COVID. Now, all these companies in regulated industry, whether it's fintech or healthcare or industrial, what have you, they all need to innovate. And so what we're seeing is, again, from these product awards, a lot of tools and companies are being created to serve those needs for, you know, vertical SaaS, basically regulation, security, compliance specific to industry and industry segments, because product is everywhere now. And with that, the bar keeps getting higher and higher in terms of what the customer is willing to you know, engage with and dig in with, right? So it's got to have those features, but I'm not willing anymore to climb Mount Everest to get to that feature. I've got to have an experience that makes it super easy to fly up to the top of Everest, right? Hasn't yeah, that changed so, a bit, the whole UI UX emphasis? Yeah, so that's been really important. And I that's definitely driven by product. Like I mentioned, you know, when you sell to the chief business officer, they care about a couple of KPIs and they buy the product and then nobody uses it because all they cared about was, do I have a dashboard that's going to show me a KPI? But if the tool itself is really hard to use, they're never going to get good data, right? It's like garbage in, garbage out. Right. So now with the drive for user experience that comes from the, the rise of product in Fortune 1000, you have tools and products that are super easy to use and therefore people use them more. Like I, I can take an example to make it real. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we're investors in a company called Amplitude that went public a couple of years ago. And this is a company that's competing directly against Google Analytics, right? So you imagine a you know, startup, scale-up type company against like a massive giant that has like free product with infinite distribution. And they uh, knocked it out of the part and they continue to do it now as a public company because they offer a better user experience, because they focus on the end-to-end -end experience of what am I trying to accomplish? Am I reporting on some random KPIs that really you know, are hard to, to, to read or, or are based on, on, on poor data? Or am I actually trying to understand user journeys and qualify user experience with insights and and data. So it's a it's a massive shift in the in what's being delivered to customers. Yeah, really interesting. So I see. What do you look for then in a great product? In a great, I know you probably get sick of asking this question. Uh, what do you look for in, in terms of a great product? What signals to you? Hey, this is this is something that can be truly differentiated, or this is really beautiful product design or product development. Yes, yes, yes. I never get tired of answering this, first of all, because I, I wrote a whole book on it, but yeah. also because the answer keeps changing, right? Oh. Like I've been trying to answer this question on our on our platform products that count for like almost 10 years now. And the answer keeps evolving with new technologies, like whether it's the, you know, the fad, or like NFTs, blockchain, sustainability, um, uh, now AI, 
or like some, you know, real long-term innovation trends, and some of them are, are both. Um, so, you know, the, 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 core, the core of it is a little bit philosophical, but it, it, that's the, the, the part that, that never gets old. Um, you know, when you think about our technology, uh, it's become an extension of ourselves. Um, we have, you know, our phone constantly in our hands, we have glasses, we have watches, um, you know, sometimes we have augmented people. Now we're talking about having, you know, AI companions. So a great product is really making us a great person. And so you have to think about like, if I want to describe what a great product is, I have to be able to describe what a great person is. And so I, you know, I, after all, I, I live in San Francisco in California. So I use the mind, body, spirit framework to describe that. And, you know, if you think about those three rules, you take you know, the body first. Um, you know, we all want to look good. We all want to um, operate by beauty and we expect the same from our technology. But of course, like you mentioned, right, it's not like pretty pictures. It's about efficiency. It's about user journey. It's about having a wow factor. And how do you put that in your product with new technologies or existing ones? The second one is uh, you know, uh, body spirit. We, we all want to have meaningful lives. And therefore, we expect that our products will also be meaningful. And by that, I mean, they'll be personalized. So AI is one of the ways that you personalize that. There's a lot of, um, you know, um, uh, attributes that you also collect in, you know, on, on your phone, on your watch, like your health signal, your calendar, your photos, and so on, that allow to personalize an experience. But at the same time, you want to personalize experience, but you also want to protect your privacy and what are the risks that you're protecting against? And then the, the third element, your body, spirit, mind, uh, the mind rule, I call it, is um, we, we're, we're all learning beings. We all want to learn. We all want to evolve. We expect that our technology will evolve as well. And there are different ways that technology will learn. There's like very incremental way, which you know, is what you hear maybe with buzzwords like uh, lean startups and stuff like that. And then there's very strategic ways um, which, uh, which allow to, to really leapfrog uh, different like waves of innovation in, in terms of technology learning and, and evolving. So that's you know, what I think of as a, as a great product, a product that makes us better people. Right. What about in the individual that you know, you're, you're talking with as a potential um, a founder of a new company that you want to invest in perhaps? Right. Yes. When they so, present the product, you know, sometimes they have a different orientation and relationship to the product. Uh, sometimes it's very personal. Sometimes it's very technical. Sometimes it's very, you know, general. Um, how do you view these things, and how do you evaluate? Um, yes. Yeah. So you know, like like as a, as investors, when we look for companies, I mentioned we invest in Series A, mostly B two B SaaS, and mostly US. Uh, doesn't mean we won't do, you know, other things, but that's kind of the core of what we do. Yeah. And when we invest, we look at three things. We look at team, we look at traction and terms. Uh, you can see, right, two, two times three, I, I like to think in three. So the team, we look for a, a great coachable CEO, a high-performing team, a well-functioning board, the traction part, we look at revenue, revenue growth, revenue composition, customer references, of course, the size of the market. And then terms, 
we operate by fairness. You know, we have long-term relationships with our founders. And so we look at fair terms. Uh, we look at a good syndicate of co-investors. Um, and very often entrepreneurs invite us to be on the board uh, because we help, you know, with go-to-market acceleration. And so that's something that we can do as well, uh, if it makes sense. Yeah, I imagine it'd be hard to join all the boards that are asking you to, to help them. But um, I have good partners, so it helps. Yes, yes. yes. and a good group there at Mighty. So what um, you have a different model at, at your firm, too. It's um, somewhat different. Can you can you share that? Yeah, so what's really unique is we, you know, we're very disciplined investors. And so we make maybe five investments per year. So whenever we pick a company to invest in, we'll go all in to help them with our product platform. And so a great way for entrepreneurs to say like, would it make sense for me to engage with Mighty Capital is to say, can I take advantage of 300,000 product managers? And I can do it in different ways. I can do it in the go-to-market examples that I mentioned. Uh, some of the results we've, we've helped founders uh, achieve, uh, acceleration by 30% of the sales cycle, adding millions of dollars to your top line, entering entirely new verticals, signing up like named customers on your target account list. So if you're selling to product managers, we, we have like very demonstrable value add. We can also help you sell your company to uh, a chief product officer. And we have case studies where this has happened. A chief product officer in our network bought one of the companies that we invested in. And then, of course, we can help you hire. And so, like I said, you know, we make maybe five investments a year. Every investment, we're going to go all in and say, what are the different programs we need to put in place yeah. to help you achieve your goals? Yeah, see, that's great. What a unique uh, feature for a firm. Um, what we hear in every pitch now when we talk to VCs is, do you have product market fit? I don't know when this came up first. And, I, you know, you, you've obviously been closer to it. But PMF has become the, uh, the most buzzy of buzzwords um, in the venture game. But it seems like it can be used a little subjectively as opposed to objectively how do you define product market fit yeah i think that's such a great question and <laughs> i agree with you it's a total buzzword so i'll tell you right away i think product market fit is a miss and when i try to think where does it come from it's like you know we have to go back 20 years when i first started my career in silicon valley where products used to come in boxes right you started a company you bought a bunch of databases and they were shipped to your office in boxes and then you bought software and they were shipped in cds right so back then if you built a product there was a line in the sand that was called the launch date where you said hey i'm building now i'm launching right i'm shipping my product now i'm like selling and marketing it right and when the cloud came in when salesforce you know really invented the cloud and revolutionized those, all that we kind of got lost a little bit and we were like, okay, so we used to have that line in the sand. Now we don't have it. We're just going to call it product market fit, right? So there's the before product market fit where we build and then there's the after when we sell. But that's not at all how it happens. Most products in the cloud, it's like you launch a little feature, you test it, it works, it doesn't work, you iterate on it, you launch another one, you're going to upset a few customers, gain new ones, and you're kind of going to 
stumble your way into your go-to-market. So there's something like, you know, 50 shades of product market fit. And then when you look at not the startups, but the established companies, and you tell them like, do you have product market fits? They, they just laugh. They're like, I have a, you know, hundreds of millions of customers and I have products. Like, does that mean I have product market fit? So I think it really is a myth that come from that, you know, legacy of 20 years ago. And the truth is that you're actually inventing you, your go-to-market and building your product as you go, because now most digital products are cloud-based. Yeah, I'd like to continue down that down that line of, of discussion because it's so interesting as you bring your product out, how do you emphasize to that customer what you're offering? What's the most important point to get across and how do you do it? How do you bring that product to market in the most efficient way? Yeah, I, I, so there's a lot of, uh, of things to unpack here. One is, hey, if I don't have product market fit as the, you know my, my goalpost, then how do I define product success, right? Like what makes a successful product? And it goes back to kind of business fundamentals, like a great product, you know, is uh, developed at a great company, great company makes a lot of money. So how do you tie everything you build back to the revenue you generate? And, you know, in 2021, that was not a very popular message, but now like everybody gets it, right? I have to do more with less. I have to be super effective with my, my dollars and my engineering talent. So, that's the first thing from a kind of an internal standpoint, being able to map a roadmap and a technical technology vision to a, a go-to-market revenue, margin, profitability. And then the second, your, your second question is about how do you communicate that to, to your customers? And that's really interesting because that really has to do with like in your go-to-market, like there are a lot of people today who say, oh, my product is my go-to-market. I'm going to just do what people call product-led growth. That's the other like super popular buzzword. But the thing is, product-led growth is only applicable in a very small subset of companies. You have to have a, a company or a product that is both viral and sticky. And the reason for that is if you want your product to drive your growth, your product needs to be viral. So the, you know, the very simple example is Dropbox. If I want to share a file with you, I'm, you, both of us have to be on Dropbox. So there's a virality element. And then it has to be sticky because if I share a file with you, it, you have to want to hold on to it and then hold on to all the other files that everybody else has shared with you so that at some point, Dropbox comes to you and say, hey, Nick, uh, uh, Keith, <laughs> sorry. Hey, Keith, you, you got you to pay us now. You have like a lot of files that you're holding on to on our server and you'll say, yeah, it makes sense that I have to pay. So that's a product that growth motion requires viral and sticky. If your product doesn't have viral and sticky, you're gonna have to go with the traditional, you know, enterprise sales go to market with the caveat that we were talking about earlier where you're gonna sell to products instead of selling to business or selling to IT. Uh, so you're gonna have to build a great product and you can still have some product-driven sales tactics, like you could have free tries, you could have reverse tries, and so on and so forth, but you still need to build a go-to-market motion, which is really difficult to do. 
Yeah, especially in a crowded market and everything's getting more crowded right now, right? Are there any new categories? But let's say let's take a different example. If you enter a, a crowded category, how do you differentiate yourself? Yes. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Like that that you'd say like there are entrepreneurs who enter you know crowded market and try to differentiate because there is a point where the differentiation is how many dollars do you have so that you can make a bigger splash. Um, you know, if you think about how you innovate today, you also have to innovate not just on your technology, but also on your go-to-market. So one of our kind of big, um, you know, kind of uh, hallmark um, uh, approach is um, you building category-defining products, um, uh, which I, I think the book that describes it the best is uh, Think Bigger or something like that. And it basically says like, if you want to create a, a great company today, don't go and play in the red waters where it's, you know, it's very competitive and very bloody. Go and create a new category for yourself, define it, and then position yourself as the market leader in this category. So I can give you an example of that. We were just talking about it earlier, Salesforce, you know, when they created cloud-based CRM, they were competing against a very established market. The dominant player was Siebel Systems. I actually used to work for Siebel Systems. And they, they came in and they said, you know, Salesforce came in and they said, we're not software. Oh, they are obviously software. They're a software company, but they were not software because they didn't come in a box, right? They didn't come on a CD. They didn't run on a, on a database they were in the cloud. So all the challenges of implementing uh, software at the time didn't exist with, with Salesforce, which is why they said, we're not software, even though of course they are software. And that was category defining. Now today, you know, the same thing happened with Netflix and Blockbusters and so on and so forth. But as an entrepreneur, uh, you definitely want to have the same, you know, approach of positioning yourself as a category defining market leading company. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize you were at Siebel too. No wonder you have yeah. Salesforce stories because that was an ultimate disruptor kind of a story. It was such a great story. Actually, uh, you know, if, if you recall the, the way they executed that strategy, they, they um, sent uh, like dozens of rollerbladers around the annual massive user conference at Siebel Systems. So you had, you know, thousands of, of Siebel system customers who were going in and out of that conference center and the Salesforce rollerbladers were all around with like these massive t-shirts with no software. Right, and that right, created, that made a lot of money. Yeah, exactly. That made a lot of that. that. That tactic, one of our portfolio companies used it last year, Canela Media. They're like the Netflix for Latin America. Oh, and uh, at a big annual user conference of their main competitor, they hired these massive trucks, like three or five massive trucks, and they parked them in front of the annual user conference of their competitor with like big ads, like Canela is the best and listen to our news and watch our you know kids programs and so on and so forth. And that got them huge audience, huge recognition. So these guerrilla tactics, you really want to be using them to define yourself as the new entrant and make more noise with less dollars, basically. Yeah. I love it. And that's a great look back. Thank you for sharing that anecdote. <laughs> let's, 
Let's take a quick look forward because with having you on this call, my, my intention was to bring up the opportunity within the AI landscape and what you're looking at and how you evaluate it. And I think it's a little bit interesting because where we normally find these green fields and people just create like what we saw with the browser and, and what we call the Netscape moment, um, that, that people are trying to say, we now have a Netscape-like moment with what's happening in the AI world. But what we see that with the with AI and its evolution, it's been going on for 20 plus years. And now all of a sudden, there are two, three, four companies that are really um, putting in these um, these tent poles, and they're huge companies. They're not small. And they're in the, if not by name, like Microsoft, Google, but by investment, they could be worth billions of dollars at launch in terms of their valuation. So I think kind of a it's kind of a evolutionary trend with AI now being infused inside of, of software and applications, but also from a business structure, it is a little bit unique in a way. Do, do, do you uh, have a thought on that? Yes, absolutely. So a couple of things on the AI. First of all, um, I mentioned our annual product awards. And this year, obviously out of the 4,000 nominations, we got hundreds of AI companies nominated. There is absolutely a hype. Now, when we consult with our product advisory board, which is you know, a couple dozens of really experienced product executives, what they're telling us is AI is a, is, is a commodity. So they're expecting that there will be AI in pretty much every product they buy. And so the question is like, if you're an entrepreneur, where do you want to innovate in AI, right? You don't want to come up with a new algorithm or a new application um, because it's just too easy to copy. And, and it really is a, a big, big player move like a Microsoft or a Google or, or, or something like that. So you can innovate in the, the infrastructure layer, like, hey, we're supplying a better way to run some AI or to hold some compliance around AI. Yes, you can have some innovation there or security in AI. I think that, um, you know, the, the other aspect that is going to become more and more interesting is how do these large companies mitigate the risks that are related with, to, to AI? Um, for example, you know, when you look at the security industry, when like cyber attacks started to emerge, the way these large companies mitigated it is, oh, they implemented some security compliance and firewalls and things like that. So same thing with AI, like I was saying earlier in infrastructure, but they also bought insurance products like cybersecurity insurance. And so we think there's going to be some innovation there on how do you, you know, evaluate the risks related to AI and how do you create innovative products and possibly innovative companies around that. Now, your question is like, are we at a you know Netscape moment with AI? I, I don't think so. I think that the Netscape moment will come once the computing power um, required to process AI models catches up with the amount of data that you know AI models need to process. And that moment, I think, is a few years out. It's closer to when quantum computing is going to have you know a little bit of. Uh, some some form of a mainstream applicability. Okay, so it's still uh, a few years out. So save, save a date for me in a, in three years, okay? Yeah, three or five <laughs> or seven. Our, our, our quantum <laughs> yeah. computing discussion. Um, yeah. So let me ask you. I, I am a little out of time with you, and I know. So so give me one more or two questions. 
of your favorite highlights and your and and that one decision you made that you might make another decision. In other words, not a mistake, but something you'd think about and go, I wish I did this instead of that or uh, a thought like that. And if it doesn't come to mind, I don't I, I'm springing it on you all of a sudden. It's not very fair. But um, I know with your career, picking a highlight can be a challenge also. But I like to ask that question. Yeah, I mean, your question being, do I have regrets? Like I have, uh, I think, very little regrets. There, do, did I make mistakes? Countless mistakes. Um, the 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 key driver for me, or maybe you know, if you're asking, like, would I do something differently? Um, yeah, I have this this sticker on my on my computer. Uh, it's very small, but it it says, uh, "You are ready." And I wish I had had that sticker in front of me like ten years ago. If entrepreneurs ask me for uh, advice, like usually that's what I say. I say, you are ready. And if they're like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, okay, so please outline for me what else you need to learn before you move forward with, you know, your big dream, your ambition. And when it's like, okay, outline that specifically for me, then all of a sudden they realize that most of the time they've learned everything they needed to learn. And so therefore they are ready but we are our best obstacle. We're always, you know, kind of pulling, holding ourselves back. Like, oh, if I just did this more and that more, well, we are actually ready to, to make things happen. And, and the world needs, you know, people who are building the future. Yeah, that's very motivational in a, in a sort of a subliminal way. Yeah, <laughs> that, that sticker, it's right yeah. there. <laughs> I need a sticker. Well, SC, thank you so much for uh, spending time. I encourage everybody to check out Products That Count if you don't know it already. And uh, fantastic success with Mighty Capital and everything else you're doing. Just wonderful to have this discussion with you. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. All right. Take care. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to The Look Back. We do appreciate your support. Welcome any feedback and would love it if you would subscribe to this podcast and even consider sharing it with some of your friends. For more information and other cool info, check us out at newmanmediastudios.com.